Some claim that Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, in John chapter 2, justifies social drinking. We're going to examine those claims in this, the 34th edition of Sound Teaching. If the use of the word wine always denotes fermented beverage, why is wine condemned in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 without respect to the amount imbibed? When the writer says, wine is a mocker, intoxicating drink arouses brawling, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. But then in Psalm 104, in verses 14 and 15 of the text, it's stated as a blessing which is supplied by God. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation and wine that makes glad the heart of man. How can what God has given us as a blessing be described as a mocker? Well, I believe that Psalm 104 is referring to the unfermented juice of the grape, which was a refreshing and common drink of the day, while Proverbs chapter 20 refers to fermented wine, whose deleterious effects are so often described and condemned in God's holy word. But as people read scripture and they see that word wine, they say, it still says wine. And I've even heard that said with regard to the wedding feast where our Lord performed a miracle in Cana. You remember that from John chapter 2. In verse 9 of the text, we are told that when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, of course, that was the miracle that Jesus had performed, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. The more I study the text, the more I am convinced that The wine mentioned in verse 9 was not intoxicating drink at all, but rather unfermented grape juice. Now, when I state this position, the response sometimes is, it still says wine. May I respectfully submit that it does not. You see, the word in the passage from the Koine Greek is oinos. Now, the Koine Greek is the language of inspiration, and it's not the equivalent of our English word wine. Some might object that what I'm trying to do is to explain away the import of plain scripture by using this trick about the Greek language. Well, that's not the case. In fact, you should never let anyone shame you into thinking that an in-depth examination of any text of scripture is an attempt to avoid truth. I don't believe that one must go to the Greek to prove the use of the word wine in John 2 is unfermented. I, I think I can easily do that by an appeal to context. But I'm not going to ridicule any man who would use the original language of inspiration to explain a passage of Scripture. Let me use a parallel argument as illustration. The modern-day definition of the word baptism includes the sprinkling or pouring of water over the recipient. Any thorough dictionary will contain those words as part of the description. And in discussing the principle of baptism as immersion with a Methodist, for example, an individual could turn to such a dictionary and say, it still says baptism in an attempt to justify the practice of sprinkling and pouring. But we all know that this argument holds no merit. Now, I can and do turn to Romans 6 and Acts chapter 8 to show that baptism is a burial in water. And in doing so, I can prove that baptism is immersion. And I can do that without an appeal to the Greek. But I can also go to the Greek word translated baptize in our English Bibles and prove the same point. 
We all recognize the value of the Greek definition in that instance. In fact, many who would say, it still says wine, would not hesitate to go to the Greek to prove their point on baptism. And so, perhaps they're a bit inconsistent in their practice. The fact is that the Greek word oinos is a very general term, and it does not in and of itself indicate whether the beverage is fermented or not. A mistake is made when one assumes that every time the word wine is used, it indicates an intoxicating beverage. It does not. And in fact, it does not in John 2. Fact is, John 2 clearly teaches in its context that the beverage was unfermented grape juice. Consider for a moment. This was a feast, and the wine was flowing in copious amounts. As John recorded, they had well drunk. Anyone knows that if a person drinks alcohol in any amount which could be described as well drunk, well, drunk is exactly what he would be. And then Jesus made a great deal more wine, up to 180 gallons more. Now to teach that this wine was an intoxicant is to claim that our Lord, the guileless one, performed a miracle to make a bunch of drunks more drunk. And of course nothing could be more blasphemous than to contend our Lord could be implicated in the sin of any man. Such a contention is utterly ridiculous. If Jesus created fermented wine, then... We must not condemn those who drink. We must not condemn the brewer, the bartender, or the barkeep. We, we must teach our children temperance, not abstinence. And we should supply in our home drink so that we can train our children in its proper use. We must not condemn those who advertise beer on television because, after all, they above all others include slogans of temperance in their advertisement. Think before you drink and... Don't drink and drive. That's two of the messages that beer companies presently use in their commercials. All of this is good and wholesome as long as there is no excess, and it should be embraced by the child of God if, indeed, Jesus turned water into fermented wine. I know some may say still, it still says wine. Well, that's a stirring, if empty, slogan, but I can trade slogans with the best of them. How about this one? Jesus did not tend bar. Thanks for listening to this edition of Sound Teaching. The Sound Teaching broadcast is brought to you by the West Side Church of Christ in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Stan Cox, and I am the evangelist for this family of Christians. For more information about our congregation, or to find much more material for your private study, please visit our website at soundteaching.org. That's soundteaching.org. Until next time, we pray God's blessings upon you.